You're listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. Welcome back into the Young Adults Podcast. We are starting a new series this week, uh, which is going to be kind of our Easter series, and it's entitled 30 Pieces of Silver. It's really important that that we look at the story uh, of Easter in a, in a couple weeks and celebrate one of the most incredible things, the most incredible thing that's ever happened, that's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But for the next few weeks, I want to look at a part of the story that happened before the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 15. It says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. See, we could probably talk for the entire time about whether or not Judas truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I think it's important that we remember that Judas was Jewish and was expecting a a ruling, military-minded king, not a meek, humble rabbi who wanted to talk about forgiveness and love. And so Judas was probably frustrated because his expectations were not met. And oftentimes as human beings, what happens is when our expectations are not met, we make exchanges that we do not understand. For the sake of the series and the conversations that we will have, we, we have to look at the practical that led to the eternal. And the practical was this, is that simple fact, Judas made an exchange. Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We all make exchanges too. Over the next few weeks, we will talk about exchanges that we often make in our lives here and now. So this week, I want to be a little bit broader with our topic. I want to maybe take a 30,000-foot view comparatively to what we'll talk about the next few weeks. But the, the first topic that I want to talk about is this, is the fact that we make an exchange, and that exchange is this, Jesus for idols. Jesus for idols. Before we dive in, we have to talk about what an idol actually is. Yes, there are physical idols that are incredibly dangerous, physical uh, statues or whatever you may want to call them that people worship, and those can be absolutely dangerous. And we'll touch on those a little bit, but I want to add this quote from Tim Keller to give us a, a, a fully rounded perspective of idolatry. Tim, Tim Keller says this, If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness or more fundamental to the meaning of life or the identity that you have than it is an idol. The human heart is indeed a factory that mass produces idols. Idols are everywhere, and if we're not intentional about identifying them, they can absolutely destroy our lives. In my growing up, in my church background, we rarely talked about physical idols at all, and that's completely understandable. I grew up here at Faith Chapel in Billings, Montana. We live in a Western culture where thinking about figurines that represent other powers is pretty foreign. But for a moment, I would like us to consider the cultural context of which scripture, of which this scripture was written. A world littered with idols and false gods. That as we talk about the Gospels, as we talk about the letters, as we talk about the New Testament, the Old Testament, like from from front to back, we're talking about a culture that is littered with idols and false gods. For the longest time, I thought that that kind of worship was essentially just the worship of nothing. 
like a silly way to spend your time. That God is the only true God, and thus if you are worshiping anything else, you are worshiping air. You are worshiping nothing. But what we often fail to realize is that there is something spiritual being worshipped when the physical idol is being worshipped. If you've been a part of Faith Chapel uh, on the weekends over the last few months, we've been talking about the book of First Timothy, and and we talked about how the culture in um, Ephesus and uh, the different areas of the the world that Paul is writing to, they are worshiping other gods. They're worshiping the god Artemis, and, and Artemis has not just a temple, but millions of idols and statues that you could take home and worship and all those different things. And while we don't believe that Artemis was is real, is was a real god, there is a demonic force behind that that is gaining worship from people and, and acting out on behalf of the people who are worshiping that Force. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. He says this, What am I saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want to be participants with demons. See, Paul knew that we could we can create idols of the heart, but he also knew that people were stepping into relationship with demonic forces and they worshiped physical idols. Idolatry is multifaceted. It's something very tangible and real. The quote, don't fall into idolatry, has face value. Don't find yourself in front of idols. And oftentimes we completely discount the fact that there are physical idols because we live in the culture that we do. But I've spent time in Ethiopia, in Guatemala, in Brazil. I've spent time with my friends on the reservations here in Montana. Like different cultures have actual physical idols idols that are being worshipped. And just because we don't walk down the street and see them like other people, we have to be aware that that is a force in the world and we need to avoid that kind of idolatry. Secondarily, idolatry can and is about the prioritization of the heart. That it's It's a disordered love. That something that has taken place in precedent over our value of God becomes an idol in our life. So what does that mean? It means we need to ask this. What are we truly worshiping? What are we truly worshiping? One of my favorite books in the last year that I've read is God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. And he spends a lot of different times throughout the book talking about idols and idolatries and and what we spend our time worshiping. But I want to read a passage Um, out of his book, and he says this. He says, In a secular society, the gods become non-spiritual. Money, sex, power, more followers on Twitter, flatter abs, anything that takes the place of God in your heart. The temple becomes shopping malls and sports stadiums and senate chambers. Worship becomes the sacrifice of money or time or health or your family or your virginity or whatever it costs you to get what you want out of life. But here's what we need to remember. Behind these non-spiritual secular gods, there is often lurking a real spiritual being. Like with an idol, behind the hunk of wood or rock or metal is often a creature with a scary amount of power. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, When we humans commit idolatry, worshiping what is not God as if it were, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos a power, a prestige, an authority over us, which we, under God, were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority over the world and give it instead to that thing, whatever it is. I can't help but think of our culture's obsession with sex and the dark underbelly of hardcore porn and sex trafficking and child prostitution happening in our cities. You're telling me there's nothing demonic behind that. 
You see, we have to understand that we make exchanges. And so what I want to do is I want to look at some of those non-secular gods this week. Some of the things that Comer brings up just in that passage. And I want to ask questions. What exchanges are we willing to make? What, where are areas that we often find ourselves making uneven and broken exchanges? The first area is this, money. Judas traded the actual person of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we can scoff at that and say that we would never. But, but money is one of the most prominent idols in our culture and our lives today. It's so easy to be consumed by what money could bring us. This last weekend, Nate preached about the love of money and pointed to Luke chapter 16, verse 13. And that passage says this. It says, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is money, and the exchange can be subtle, but it comes back to a point that Nate made this last weekend. Money is a great tool, but a terrible master. It is to be used, not to be worshipped. There's this this graphic that maybe you've seen before, and it's a guy who's who's standing on the street, and somebody rides by with a bike, and he's like, oh, if I just had a bike. And then it goes to the next frame, and it's the guy on the bike, and they, he sees a guy on a scooter, and he's like, oh, man, if I just had that, like that would be better. A motorized scooter would be so much better. And then the guy on the scooter is looking at somebody in a car, and somebody in a car is looking at somebody in a Corvette, and somebody in a Corvette's looking at somebody in a limo, and a limo's looking at somebody in a yacht. Like There's just always something else that somebody wants but money can become this master of our lives it can it can be all consuming and there are parts of it that, that like we have to pay our bills and we have to support our families and all of those things and that's great in the aspect of being a tool or saying hey like a lot of money in my hands has the potential to be a tool to further the kingdom of God to love people well to 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 help people like put food on the table whatever it may be but the, the, the problem is, is that when it becomes an idol in our lives, our posture isn't, oh, look at all of these things that I have to give. It's well, once I have more, then I'll be able to give so that I can keep what I have now. The fact of the matter is that whether if we're not willing to give out of the little that we have, we will probably not be willing to give out of the much that we are given. So we must be people who constantly have a posture that says, I'm unwilling to make an exchange with money that means that it will be my master. That I am willing to use money as a great tool. And if I am blessed with affluence, I will use that to help the kingdom of God and help the people around me. But I will not let it lord over me. Another area is sex. If we do not think that sex is an idol, we're kidding ourselves. And one of the main reasons I know that sex is an idol is because it has been an idol in my life. And when I said sex, you probably paused for a moment and were like, oof. Because we understand that it holds so much power in our culture. It has been and it has held that power for millennia. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is talking to the church in Thessalonica and he says this, For this is God's will your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. A 2020 survey stated that most kids are exposed to porn between the ages of 7 and 13. 7 and 13. I have a 10-year-old have a nine-year-old that's a reality that I have to live with is that if I'm not discipling my kids well and even if I am there's a really good chance that they could get exposed to something that ruined the better part of a decade of my life it's terrifying that that is the world 
that we live in. And what might be more scary is that because of the idolization of sex, sex becomes not just a commonality in their conversation, but it becomes a commonality in action. That most people are losing their virginity before they turn 18. Too many of us have have attempted to find validation. Too many of us have attempted to find love through sex. Well, if I give this to him or I give this to her, then they will love me. Or it's going to make me feel better about myself because if somebody wants to have sex with me, then I'm being validated. Like I'm desirable. You see, our time and our money and our overall focus has been consumed both culturally and individually by sex. And just like with so many other things, sex is a gift given by God, but something that is undeni- it is something that is undeniably amazing if happening in the right context. Part of Larissa and I's story is that we had sex before we were married. And I remember walking with so much shame and so much guilt every single time that it happened because I knew that that wasn't the design for us. And then when we got married, when we got married and we had sex, man, I was like, wait, is this what it's supposed to be like? Like, I'm not supposed to carry shame. I'm not supposed to carry guilt. Like, I'm not supposed to look at myself with regret because of of the actions that I took. Instead, like, I got to step into holy union and experience what God had intended this to be in the first place. You see, the problem is that the exchanges we often make are for distorted version of God's intention. That we, we make exchanges so that, that we can we can step into a sexual relationship, but if it's not under the banner of matrimony, it's distorted. And it might feel good for a moment, but I promise you it's not what it could be. When I was in high school, uh our high school ministry did a relationship series as high school ministries do. If you grew up in a relationship series, like you've probably heard dozens of them. Um, and it was just like, so typical, like the guys got split up over here and the girls got, went to like another room where the, the ladies, like the wives of the pastors talked. And, um, at the end we were going to come back together and do a Q and a, and you know, the guys talked about porn and like, cause guys are obviously the only ones who struggle with porn. No woman ever struggles. Like it's just ridiculous. And then the guys, then the girls talked about body image and, and the clothes that they wear and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, oh my gosh, looking back at it, I'm like, that's such a bummer that that is how we did Like I feel like at the time it was like, that's exactly what we should be doing. Like guys are the only ones who struggle with porn. Girls are the only ones who struggle with body image. We are so wrong in so many <laughs> ways. But at the end of that, we came back for, for a Q&A. And it was kind of like a give and take. And so students were asking questions. But then one of the pastors, he said this, he goes, what would be a tangible representation of like the ultimate love? Like, how would you, how would you explain that? And hands shot up like immediately. And the first person, this dude just goes, Oh, sex. Like if she has sex with me, I know that she loves me. And I was like, dude, you are bold. Like that is what an answer right off the top. And what that started though, was this snowball effect of people having answers that were just essentially sex, sex, sex. Like when, when someone is willing to give themselves physically to me, or if I am willing to give myself physically to them, that is the ultimate tangible representation of love. And I remember like in my spirit as like a 16 year old being like, that doesn't feel right. Like that just doesn't feel right. And then an upperclassman in our ministry raised his hand and he goes, I think the ultimate tangible way to express your love is sacrifice. 
And I was like, that is so good. The pastor took it from there. Then he explained how we've sold ourselves to a, a cheap version of love when we th- talk about sex, but sacrifice, being willing to sacrifice ourselves or sacrifice of ourselves for the people around us. That, that is love. And oftentimes what that means, sacrifice means not doing what we physically want to do, but instead doing what we know is the right thing to do. One of the things that, that we need to do as followers of Jesus is constantly be praying for clarity of mind, to see situations in people the way that God does, that we would look into our relationships that has the potential to, to be an idol in and of itself, but the sexual part of that being an idol and saying, wait a second, I want to see this situation. I want to see this person the way that God sees this situation. I want to see this person the way that God sees this person. I want to be somebody who has the eyes of Christ. You see, if we only look at things through our own human broken lenses, we will only find broken results. If we only look at things through our own broken lenses, we will only find broken results. We have to have the lens of Christ and he will push us away from the idolization of sex and money. The third area is power. Unfortunately, we live in a world obsessed with power. If you Google power, one of the first results that you'll get for the definition is the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. You see, we often exchange the ability to actually intentionally impact people's lives for the ability to influence their behaviors or actions. We exchange the ability to impact for the ability to influence behavior. But what we're looking for is eternal impact, propelling people towards the love of Christ, not just the ability to influence their actions or the behaviors in a moment. There's a quote that I came across recently that said, strive for impact, not monuments. Strive for impact, not not monuments. We want to make impact that is eternal, that is lasting. We're not trying to build monuments to ourselves so that people will idolize us or build monuments for something that we've completed or that somebody else has completed and idolize that. But instead, we're striving for impact in the lives of people. So whether it's one of these idols or something else, we're, we're doing what N.T. Wright described at the front end in the quote out of Comer's book. We're abdicating the God-given authority that we have. God has created us to be co-laborers and co-creators to be the people who are ruling over that which we often let rule us. Instead of people who are using these things to, to glorify God, we are allowing these different things to control us. You see, when we get to create healthy sexual rhythms, we are ruling over that aspect of our lives. And it can be absolutely beautiful. But if it is ruling us, it's taking us to places that we did not want to go. You see, if we're ruling over our money and we're using it as a tool, man, that is what God intended us to do. But if it is ruling us, then we are abdicating authority to it. We're called to have power. We're called to have ownership. But if it's ruling over us, we are abdicating power to that idol. See, when we exchange what God has given us for some disordered love or some distorted version, we are breaking the heart of our creator. So to wrap up, let's answer this question. How do we avoid idolatry? How do we avoid idolatry? We focus on the only one who is worth our worship. That if we are so focused on who Jesus is, 
if we are so focused on the fact that he is the Lord of our lives, that he is God, he is ruler, we won't have time to focus on the other things. But we actually have to be intentional about zeroing in on who Jesus is. And when other idols are trying to get our attention, whether it's sex, money, power, something else, we say, Lord, how do you want me to interact with this? Because this isn't going to take precedence over who you are in my life. We must focus on the only one who is worth our worship. Thank you for listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. If you are in the Billings area, we would love to see you at our in-person gatherings on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're unable to attend in person, there are always ways to engage online. Follow along through Instagram at faithchapel.ya or find our ministry page at faithchapel.cc. You are loved.